Welcome back to a brand new episode of People Are Wild. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse of a host, and to channel my inner stained, it's been a while, hasn't it? Now, I have been traveling from New Hampshire to Nevada, and I'm recording this in what will be the past once it's released, talking about the future that will still not be occurring. It's a whole thing. It's a mind trip. Grab a DeLorean because you need to go back to the future. Now, I have a job I will be doing in the wonderful Nevada desert, something called Burning Man. Look it up if you haven't heard of it. And I'm working their medical team out there. So I wanted to make good on my promise of coming back in September. And here is a September episode that is also the very first review of a film, in this case actually more of a documentary, that I watched and kind of became a little bit emotional. Well, maybe not emotional, emotional, but it struck a chord with me. We'll just say that. And lucky for me, I also had a special guest co-host who helped me with creating this episode. So I have lit my Dennis Quaid prayer candle. It might be blowing out in the windy desert of Nevada, but it is there. And I have listened to One Republic's Apologize on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild so i'm I'm gonna be using and i'm gonna just mention it now so i don't forget to put this either in show notes or to mention it somewhere or leave this in is that i'm using this article from the phoenix new times shout out to my home state of arizona that did a review uh the article is titled netflix's the bleeding edge exposes the horrors the fda approves from medical device makers and it's an article written by april wolf And it was published in July of 2018. So clearly it was pretty fresh at the time of this recording. Yeah, Um, that's a brutal headline. (laughs) But you know what? It's a good headline. So we're just going to dive into it (laughs) with my special guest today. Elizabeth is the host of a lovely podcast that is so family friendly if your family (laughs) likes to talk about murders. Um, It's the Ohio Valley true crime podcast extraordinaire host creator editor (laughs) producer (laughs) and elizabeth's here with us because she has kind of some interesting knowledge that i don't in regards to this netflix um again exposing the well maybe not the horrors but the stories behind what happens with fda approved medical devices and you know, give us a little bit of background about your program, but also what brings our paths together uh, tonight. Yeah, so I host a true crime podcast about murders that happen in the Ohio Valley, which is Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois. Um, did I say? Oh, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, and Ohio. I was going to say, you <laughs> forgot the Ohio part of the Ohio Valley. <laughs> I think everyone tries to kind of forget about Ohio. Sorry, Ohio. (laughs) You're a lovely state to camp in. I can confirm that, though. Punderson State Park, highly recommend. So what I do when I am not talking about dead people, it's, it's weird to say that talking about dead people is my hobby, but as my day job, I actually manufacture internal medical devices. So this whole documentary was talking about my job. Um, so it was of great interest to me. And I'll admit that it it hit kind of hard for the past four years. Uh, my whole life kind of has been about these devices um, from this 
start to beginning of the manufacturing process and working with the engineers and some of the doctors and the clients, I actually learned some things that I wasn't completely aware of um, because I'm kind of low on the totem pole. They don't tell us a bunch of stuff about the uh, process of how the devices get on the market unless you look look up the info yourself. You know, you're not going to know, but I'm one of those people where if I'm doing a job, I want to know as much as possible. So I've tried to, you know, find out information about our products specifically and other people's products and if there's an issue, what happens and things like that. I think we both kind of came from different parts of disbelief. Yeah. So with your angle being, again, that you're part of the manufacturing side of it and you know, I'm part of the healthcare side of it that sees the patients after, you know, they've had devices used and implanted in them. So for anybody who doesn't know what the bleeding edge is, it's fantastic and you should go watch it, number one. But you probably need to watch it. I don't know if you're a person that gets a little bit frustrated easily or anxious when it comes to healthcare, you might need to to medicate in some way because this is going to make your blood pressure rise. Yes, absolutely. No doubt. So it's this documentary and it just it just came out, you know, like about the time of this recording. It came out sometime in July with documentary filmmaking you know, and they try and have that personal aspect to it. So it uses a lot of personal narratives from medical professionals, healthcare professionals, all the way to lay people. And it just goes into sort of, and I'm going to lift this right from the article that summarizes it so well, that the film explores just what exactly the word complications means on a device's warnings, because I think that's the perfect way of describing it. Yeah. Um, so, so if you think about it, you hear so often about, you know, or at least I do. I remember this was when I was a little bit older, but when I was able to have a day off, I work nights. This is my ritual for when I have my days off sometimes is that I have my cup of tea in the morning and I catch up on like news or a book and then I'll put on the TV because Price is Right will come on and then it'll be like Judge Judy and then Judge Mathis and then the People's Court and then Let's Make a Deal and like that is like my me time. So it's usually at those points in daytime TV that you see these ads for like, if you or someone you love has been hurt by complications due to vaginal mesh, contact the law offices of H&H Puff and stuff. I don't know. So you see these commercials all the time and it almost becomes something that's like comical in a way, or maybe not comical, maybe synonymous with just like daytime TV. You see these ads for people who've been hurt by devices and or medications also is what you'll see. And it just it's something that I just didn't even think about. And then when I watched this documentary, I was like, oh, those are the lawsuits they're talking about. Like it just all clicked in my brain. So this, this documentary does a good job of talking to people about why they got the device, what drew them into getting it, getting it implanted or used on them. And then it follows them throughout the after after getting the devices. And it's not just one device. One of the bigger ones I think that it does talk about is the eSure. Uh, yes. That's, that's one of the things that's very prevalent as like a main storyline throughout. eSure is a metal coil, metal coil that's inserted into the fallopian tube uh, for a woman for sterilization purposes. 
and it opens up the documentary opens up with a a woman who had the procedure done years and years ago and she's sort of the main narrator for this Esher um storyline there are other women who also uh, have their own stories and they input that but she's kind of like the main person and as the documentary continues you see why she's more of the main person is because she started this online community essentially of people who have had these devastating complications as a result of something that they were sold to be beneficial for them. So that's like an underlying theme I realized throughout this whole documentary was that people were sold on this is FDA approved. If it's FDA approved, that means that it's been tested. And if it's been tested, it means that it's safe for me. Because that's what you think, right? Yeah, absolutely. Coming from the side of manufacturing the devices, I have seen stuff go from being just a sketch that somebody thought of through um, development, testing, into production, and then, you know, getting put out into the world. So I just, I kind of always had the assumption that I think a lot of people do that, you know, if you're going to put a device in somebody, it is going to be very, you know, they're going to have a lot of stringent tests and years of data to back it up that it's safe. So I, I was very upset that something that I put a lot of pride and effort into could possibly, through no fault of my own, end up hurting someone. Because, you know, it, in the manufacturing process, it is very strict. We have so many quality and safety checks throughout the manufacturing process that, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming at times, but it's done to make sure that we don't hurt anyone. Because that's a that's a big, like everyone who works with me, you know, we feel that. We know that it could be our family member. It could be us one day. Like you never know who could use this product. So it's we have to make them perfect. But if the design is flawed in the first place, then no matter what we do or how, how good we try to be at our jobs, it kind of doesn't matter if it's just messed up from the beginning. Well, and that's what the film really does a good job of doing in terms of weaving in these facts about the approval process. So if we break down the approval process um, in the way the documentary did, because it's a really good way of breaking it down without getting too into the technical things. So the FDA approval process for medical devices is not necessarily something that is streamlined. And it's probably really until this documentary, most people, myself included, didn't realize just how lax the approval process was. Um, yeah, and I yeah. know, you know, from from working with people who are in charge of getting things approved, the way that they talk, they're like, oh, it's such a long, like, drawn-out, hard process to get a medical device approved. And then I watch this documentary, and I'm like, it's really easy. Like, what are you guys talking about? Like, they make it seem like it's just so much work to get a device on the market. So one of the things they talk about is how you can get devices grandfathered in based upon patents of previous devices, even if those devices were taken off the market later after being shown to cause complications in patients. So if you base something off of something that's faulty, it'll get approval quicker because the patent it's based off of got approval at some point. I think that's kind of how I interpreted it. Yeah. And... 
you can have all these devices out on the market that are based upon a flawed design that at one point was approved, but a prototype or something that came out of that patent or that product, that initial one, something else that might have failed and somebody else decided to improve on and later fails, both of those devices were approved because it was originally based upon a patent and a product that was proven to work. So it's insane to me because, you know, in the film, it talks about Esher for women's reproductive health. Uh, another bit of it talks about metal hip implants, uh, orthopedic implants that are used that are metal. And that one I thought was really interesting because the person who this advocate for having better FDA, I guess, response to these issues is an orthopedic surgeon, a doctor, an orthopod who had a hip replacement done, a man who knows about the products and then found himself essentially like losing his mind due to heavy metal poisoning as a direct result of that hip implant. I was blown away by that. Yeah. And I mean, the scary thing to think about is if he hadn't had that happen to him personally, would he have just dismissed his patients as also having, oh, it's just dementia, it's just Alzheimer's, you know, you're getting old. Like how many people are there out there who it could be reversed by taking the metal joint replacements out, but they're kind of being just um, diagnosed with other issues and they're kind of trapped, you know, and it could be kind of easily fixed just by taking out the thing that is causing them to have the motor function issues and all of the brain issues. Exactly. I mean, so, and then later on in the film, it talks about, you know, the, these women who've been impacted by the eSure device are outside of a major convention for OBGYNs. And they're trying to tell these people the dangers of putting these devices in. And you could see the pushback from these physicians and part of it, I think, is directly due to the fact that in healthcare, you want to help people. You don't get into healthcare to hurt people. And if you do, you shouldn't be in healthcare. You should be in prison. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around thinking that something you were told was FDA approved would help your patients out is causing such devastating, detrimental, lifelong complications and side effects for these people. So it's got to be, I mean, it is. It's hard to think that something you thought was helpful is hurting people. And you don't want to believe that. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? So yeah. it's hard to think that as a doctor and it trickles down it's hard to watch this documentary as a healthcare provider as a nurse and be like i've totally seen patients come in with maybe something that you know we would say is neurological but maybe we didn't make a connection maybe it was something else going on with a device that they've had implanted but no one's going to jump to that because everybody thinks medical devices are done through these really, really strict testing across the board, and they're not. I think it's several layers. I think it's partially, you know, these medical device companies, they do so much for the doctors um, when they send their people in to try to sell the products. You know, they kind of give little perks to the doctors and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's very hard for people to admit that they're wrong, especially when it involves, you know, causing harm to someone else, even if it was without your knowledge. And then I also think historically women's pain has kind of been a little dismissed by medical professionals. Um, Women are generally kind of viewed as, oh, well, you know, they're a little bit dramatic. I've seen it happen to others where they've gone in and complained about something and the doctor's kind of been like, well, you know, it's probably not that bad. It's not this, you know, you'll be fine. Or you're Um, having those women's problems. So you should really just talk to, you know, an OB about it. I don't think it's anything to do with this and that. Yeah, I, I was actually, I was on a birth control pill and it's caused me to just like have hysterical crying fits. I could not control it. Freaked me out. I went to my OB and I said, I can't take these. Can we do something else? And it was a woman. She said to me, well, if I put you on something else, you might just get hysterical again. (laughs) You were like, that's not what I'm asking. Yeah. I was like, I, this is making me feel very wrong. I'm crying everywhere. It makes no sense. This is the only thing that has changed. And she's like, well, you know, it shouldn't be doing that. So it's got to be something else. Right. Because again, people don't, in healthcare, people don't want to believe that the things that they're giving their patients are hurting them. One thing they talked about in the documentary, they did a really good job of covering the mesh. Yeah. So that's a huge issue. I mean, we can kind of there's some parts where I'm like, I don't want to like spoil it for anybody, but the vaginal mesh, those are straight up some of the most barbaric things I think that have ever rolled out in healthcare um, in terms of uh, being implanted. And the approval for it was kind of like an accidental thing that they decided to apply towards a vaginal mesh. So originally it was used for hernia repairs and if you think about a hernia repair, if you know somebody who has it, has a mesh that they put in for a hernia repair, um, and then you imagine that going into um, a woman's vaginal region for, especially after they've delivered children or, you know, they've had just various different things that have happened that have caused them to need some strengthening in that area. You think about the fact that something that's used for a hernia repair is used for the same thing is used for a vaginal like prolapse repair it doesn't make sense to me it's never makes sense like those things are not interchangeable those are different well they're they're absolutely different systems that are going on yeah so I have a lot of personal experience with the mesh from the manufacturing side because the company I work for our client was one of the kind of last men standing as far as making that mesh So for the last few months of production, um, I worked on our three mesh lines. We had one for men and we had two for women. And everyone hated that line (laughs) because the mesh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever held it just like right out of the package, Mm -mm. but it is so incredibly delicate. It rips so easy. And we sometimes we would cut the mesh from... um, a big chunk, we would cut the strips out ourselves on one line. Mm-hmm. And then on the other two, the the mesh came pre-cut. Well, the pre-cut mesh, it's got the crisscross pattern. So when you cut it, it leaves the ends open. Well, what can happen is when you pull on that, the mesh tears. 
and pieces of it can actually fall off. So normally we would scrap for that, but with as delicate as it is, as soon as the doctor takes it out and starts positioning it and stuff, I mean, you're going to have tears and parts are going to fall off. It was our highest scrap line because of how delicate the mesh was. I mean, we scrapped hundreds of parts a week because of just, like, just handling the mesh would ruin it. And not being a doctor, but just kind of being able to look and figure out how all that works, I was I was a little worried. Um, I had heard about the other lawsuits, but, again, we were the last one standing, so I assumed that they had, like, worked out all the kinks that were causing me issues. But even just looking at this mesh and seeing how um, they inserted it and everything, I... I was kind of scared of it because it's like this just, it just didn't look right. Mm -hmm. Like it just could, because, you know, because it is that crisscross pattern. It's like, well, you know, after time, isn't that going to kind of start to push in to whatever it's held against? And isn't that going to cause problems? You know? So it's, I'm glad the line is no longer there (laughs) just because I feel better knowing that I'm not a part of it. But also, I mean, it was just mesh is an incredibly frustrating thing to work with. Yeah. And then if you you think about the fact that they they just decided that, oh, the same thing that worked in this case, we're going to put this over in this reproductive system uh, without really any long term studies. They just decided that this is going to be okay. And now the other thing, too, is that a lot of these products are still on the market. Yeah, the mesh is still being made. We no longer make it at our facility, but the client makes it in-house now. I don't know why they decided to do it that way, but they did. So it's still out there. It's still being made and marketed um, in the U.S. And the thing with Esher, and it talks about this in the film, so I don't don't know if this is a big spoiler alert because you could always look it up. But at the end, it, it talks about the different places that have ended their production of it. It's unbelievable that these events have been going on for decades in some cases or you know these products have been out there for that long and it's just now because there's enough people speaking about it and there's a voice in terms of you know having this documentary that it's putting the the feet to the flame if you will and I it's kind of like somebody mentioned in one article I read it's the blackfish effect where if you're unfamiliar with the documentary blackfish it was a documentary that was very well done, I think. But, you know, if you ask somebody else, they say it was probably all propaganda uh, against SeaWorld. But it talks about the whole entire timeline of the Orca program at SeaWorld. And it's building to this underlying story that is um, the trainer that got killed by one of the, the Orcas. And... I know that SeaWorld probably didn't think anything of this documentary. And now you fast forward a few years beyond it coming out and SeaWorld has essentially had to shut down most of its operations. I think uh, last time I read, they're either close to bankruptcy or something to that effect. And a lot of people will say it's not. It's not anything to do with that documentary, but it's definitely, I think very much influenced because of that documentary because people saw it and they think that's exactly what the bleeding edge does and a few other different documentaries and they call it the blackfish effect where a documentary has this impact 
in such a way that it takes products up the market or it just puts that pressure on these bigger wigs uh, to do something because now there's all these people who know like everything that's been hiding behind the curtain the curtains torn down it's not even drawn a little bit it's gone so everybody can see everything and in in the bleeding edge near the end it does address the fda's role but it addresses it through a lot of lobbyists if we're being you yeah. know honest and i i just was like <laughs> they're they're the typical sort of lobbyist sort of thing where they yeah where they twist everything to do a positive. And you were talking about how we hear about how drug reps can sort of incentivize things for doctors to push their medication. Yeah. I was actually shocked. Like I saw a statistic that said they had only spent like $64 million on lobbying. And I was like, holy crap, that's how cheap our elected officials are that it only took 64 million dollars of one year spending for lobbying you know to kind of buy the elected officials i expected i guess that it would be a lot more money for lobbying but apparently uh not well and that's the whole thing too is that you know the drug reps can do their whole thing and there's a whole side to that but the medical device reps are completely different ball game similar but different and I remember in nursing school, I was uh, able to observe a surgery and there was a medical device sales rep who was in the OR and was trying to get the surgeon to use a new form of one of their laparoscopic tools. It kept breaking on the surgeon and he declared it a piece of crap. He had to ultimately, this surgery that was supposed to be exploratory, he had to actually open up the patient so he couldn't do the three incisions. He had to do a actual full open exploratory surgery on this patient. Wow. And it took a procedure that was supposed to be a few hours long, like three hours into like the land of six hours. At the end, the medical device rep the whole time just kept telling him, here's a new one. Just, you know, try it with this one. Here's a new one. Try it with this one. Like he went through four or five of the laparoscopic tools. And every single time he's like, this thing's a piece of crap. I don't know why we're going to even be using it, but the hospital bought a contract with them. Wow. So it didn't, it didn't even matter that it kept breaking. They were going to end up using it anyways. Yeah. I mean, one of our things with all of that is our, our whole thing about medical devices is we go for minimum invasive. Our whole mantra is we want to cause the less amount of stress and surgery and complications and healing time as possible. So for something to not work as an intended and then end up having to cause an actual like major surgery, you know, that's that's pretty upsetting. I mean, I know that I've worked on two different heart catheter lines. One's a micro heart catheter and then one's a normal sized one. And I mean, these the size of the micro heart catheter, um, I believe the circumference is about five millimeters And our tolerance when we do our quality checks is half a millimeter. So, I mean, these these are devices that are going directly into a patient's heart. So the thought of something like that actually causing the surgeon to have to do, you know, heart surgery, for example, that would, yeah, that's pretty upsetting. I haven't heard anything like that happening with 
the heart catheters that we make, but I don't know how other medical device companies are doing, you know, their devices. So that's got to be something I got to ask you this. Like, ever since watching this documentary, my mind has shifted in a lot of ways towards things that are implanted in people. And obviously, if anybody I know needs any sort of joint replacement, they are not getting any metal in them. No, absolutely not. But you work in the medical device sort of thing. Does it scare you? Maybe not scare you. Does it concern you just how like, not regulated the standards are? Yeah, it it concerns me and it angers me. It's concerning because these devices go into millions and millions of people, not just here, but like worldwide. A lot of our products are shipped all over the globe. So yeah, it's it's very concerning because I don't want anyone to get hurt ever by anything that I do. Um, And then it, it makes me angry because as a manufacturer, we are held to such an incredibly high standard. I mean, from beginning to end, it's a lot of training. We check the quality at every single station at the end throughout the day. There's so little room for error. Even on our paperwork, I noticed in one part where they were going over some notes for the women who were in the clinical trial for the eShore. Um, I noticed that oh, someone man, had marked that was out. so infuriating. Yeah. I noticed that someone had marked out the answer and there was um, their initial and date. And that's because on any paperwork that gets submitted to the FDA, you can't completely mark out or use whiteout on anything. They have to be able to read what you wrote, what you struck through. Right. And, and that's, have to that's part of day. charting. That's part of charting too, is that if we yeah. make any corrections to anything, because it's a legal document. Exactly. Is, is that you only can do one line through it and then you have to initial and date it. And then underneath at the very end of whatever, you have to write down your, the initials and then your signature so that they know who it is. Yeah, like we when we go in in the mornings, we have paperwork that we use to check all of our machinery. And if you falsify it, or even like if you write a nine, but you meant an eight, and you try to make it look like an eight, and they catch you, you will get in trouble for that. So they take all even the paperwork they take incredibly seriously. So, you know, holding the manufacturing process to that standard, it's like, well, shouldn't we all be held to this standard? you know, from the beginning to end, because it seems kind of silly to threaten people's jobs over certain things. But we've got, you know, these top officials going in and being like, eh, you know, whatever, it probably works. But if not, you know, it's all right. And then you have people who come back years and years later, having all these complications. And I don't know, that kind of resonated with me, is that there's the level of not believing your patients and not believing it's due to a medical device that's been implanted in somebody by a doctor because, again, no one wants to believe that you're hurting people with these products. You want to believe you're enhancing their life. You're creating now this opportunity for them to live, you know, back to a normal life or to give them something that they actively wanted. You know, if you didn't want to have kids, this is a way of doing this without having to go through hysterectomy or doing other stuff. And now these women have these issues that it range in different levels and impacting their life. I mean, again, not to spoil the documentary, but near the end, you find out that one of the women that they've been profiling, I mean, her whole family is separated. And, you know, some people will say that's not directly as a result of the Esher. Well, it definitely didn't help. I think people highly underestimate 
just how much medical illness and medical debt can impact someone. What I believe it was like the highest amount of credit card debt is actually related to medical debt. Oh, I totally believe it because, I mean, based off of personal experience, not just as a nurse, but I can do this uh, and relate it off of a nurse too, but personal experience, you know, my family member was hospitalized for months. And I mean, it essentially, even with insurance, it almost threw, you know, the family into a, a level of bankruptcy almost. And that's even with insurance covering as much as it could. So what was left outside of that, again, like it, it, there was a lot of different stuff that had to happen. And in, in our family, there's, you know, that's still something almost 10 years later that needs that we're trying to, you know, get it all paid off essentially. Um, and it's crazy because yeah. the, the outcome could be for anybody, the outcome could be something bad or something good. Like a person that dies after being in the hospital for, you know, a month or so, the family still has to incur that debt and they still have to pay it back. And their family member not only passed away, but now you have to pay the doctors and you have to pay the hospital for their stay. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, I had a C-section. And even with insurance, I still had to pay $10,000 out of pocket. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. And, You're just, I'm birthing a child. Oh, yeah. And then like. And that's I've, for something that's non-complicated too. I mean, if you, your kiddo had to, you know, God forbid, if they had to go to the NICU. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, you know, after he came out, he was fine. But yeah, I mean, just which, yeah, C-sections are major surgeries. But the fact that it was so much even after insurance was crazy. And, you know, simple medications like my daughter's pediatrician, she's going through puberty. So she's got really bad acne right now. Um, her pediatrician prescribed some acne medication. So yeah. I was like, all right, we'll go get the prescription filled. The poor um, pharmacist was like, just so you know, um, it's going to be $270 out of pocket. Oh my god. And gosh. I have insurance. Right. Yeah. She's like, you haven't met your deductible yet. And I was like, um, so we're gonna hold off on that for right now. Yep. <laughs> like this isn't like, necessarily life threatening. So yeah. so we can we can space this out. Yeah, I told my daughter, I was like, I'm sorry, but we're gonna hold off on that. And she's like, No, that's cool. I get it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing that maybe the other thing too is that, you know, a joint replacement it's essentially an elective surgery, you know, an Esher device being implanted in order to, you know, for a woman to have sterilization. It's an elective surgery. These aren't life-threatening surgeries. So that started to make me think, what about the devices for people that go in during life-threatening situations? What about the people that need pacemakers? Yeah. And, there, and there are some interesting articles about that. The new pacemakers, the new defibrillators they implant on people into their hearts for lethal rhythms, right? Yeah. The other day, we had a doctor who came down to uh, admit a patient who had uh, a heart issue. And when he walked out of the room, he did his research. He told us, because he was he's a great doctor who likes to teach with everybody involved on the team. So he always oh, gives you a breakdown. The best. I love it. I love him. He's a great doctor. He is hands down one of those physicians that if my family member was sick, if I was incapacitated, if they were incapacitated, this is the man that I want in my corner because he's going to find an answer. But anyways, so 
he did some research and he said this patient had a brand new pacemaker and defibrillator put in two months ago. And the reason why everything happened to him is because his defibrillator didn't do its job. That's insane. And it was like everyone was floored. We all were speechless. It's a brand new, as he said, it's the Cadillac of defibrillators and pacemakers, and it didn't do its job. How That's... insane is that? Where you, I'm just like, that it has one job to do, literally, and that's to keep your heart going. And it yeah. doesn't do it. And I it's mean, new. I don't know how the process works for um, implanted devices. Mm-hmm. I don't know what their like testing and quality checks are. So, for example, we make a steerable sheath heart catheter um, so that if the patient is having um, problems with, like, heart arrhythmia or anything, the doctor can go in with that, steer his, um, I can't remember the actual name for it, but they insert something else that can kind of, I guess, jolt certain parts of the heart to fix like whatever area is having the issue. But these steerable sheaths, the, I guess kind of, I hate to use the term from the documentary, but the innovative part. (laughs) Ah, innovation. Did you know, fun fact, my, now I hate this, my nursing school, it's like subtitle for like, you know how you have uh, the whatever school of business, this school of engineering, Mine was the uh, School of Nursing and Healthcare Innovation. Oh, yeah. And now I'm just like, I never went to that school. Yeah, Uh, the amount of times we use innovation when talking about our products, I I didn't think about it until I saw the documentary, but it's insane. (laughs) So, So we make this steerable sheath. And one of the, like, awesome things about it is that we have these four electrode bands that are on the tip so that when the doctor is doing the procedure, they can see exactly where they are and what they're doing, which is obviously helpful when you're inside of someone's heart. But the thing is, you know, when we're doing this, it's these metal rings and then we attach a wire to it. And then the wire goes up through the device and it's attached to the handle, which is then plugged into a machine to give it, you know, the ability to read and everything else. So we go through great care to make sure that everything on this device is coded and covered and nothing sticking out where it shouldn't be because god forbid if one of these little bands wasn't properly covered it could send electricity you know straight through into this person's heart so i can't imagine how you know someone's pacemaker could somehow get all the way through the manufacturing process and then not work exactly and Luckily for that patient, there was a lot of things that were in their favor that they got emergency help when they did, and they were able to come to the emergency room to be assessed. Everything was stabilized, but it could have gone bad real fast. And nobody might not have known that it was a device issue. Yeah, and that's that's what also worries me is, you know, a lot of the patients that were in the documentary, they had strong families behind them supporting them. But if you're a patient who's having an issue and you're alone or you don't have the knowledge or the money, I mean, you're not going to be able to fight. You're going to be, I mean, you're going to be left kind of screwed. I think that that's one great thing about the internet 
is in some ways, you know, it's going to be the great equalizer. It's going to allow all of these patients to find each other and to get together and hopefully fight when these devices go wrong and not get brushed aside so easily. Because if you've got, I think the Esher group had like 35,000 members. When you have 35,000 people saying, hey, something's wrong here, I think it's a lot harder for the general public to ignore. Exactly. Well, and it clearly is because Bayer, the company that uh, was making the Esher devices in America, the UK, they pulled everything from Europe, probably directly due to pressure from their regulatory committees. And I mean, I can't say that. I haven't done the research behind it, but I do know that Europe discontinued it. And then in North America, it was either like right before the documentary came out or basically around the same time, the United States said that at the end of, I believe, this year, 2018, they would phase out their production of Esher. So, and they said it, they said they did they did a blackfish move. They did a super size me move where they said that the documentary had no way any impact on their decision, that it was all because of sales. It, yeah. You know, and it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but even though they're pulling this version off the market, are they just going to come right back with something that's a little bit different and branded that a little has, bit differently? Well, and they can grandfather it in because yeah, exactly. that's the whole or the other part about the documentary that it highlighted was how broken the actual approval system is, where something like an Esher can be marketed as you've heard of Esher. So imagine we do the same thing in terms of getting you that result of sterilization, but in a safer way. Well, suddenly you have people who go, oh, okay, Esher is no longer on the table. It was unsafe. Now we got a safer method. We have something more innovative. And who's to say that that's the right thing or the wrong thing until you have people who years later come out in droves and are like, there's something wrong with this product and it's not in our heads. Now people come in with saying that I know this is not in my head. I just need somebody who believes me on the other side of the coin from a healthcare aspect, from whatever, that also is like, I think you're right. Or at least they can be like, you know what, let me do some additional testing and step outside of my own belief system just for a little bit and see if there's something more to this. Well, I made my boyfriend sit down and watch it with me last night. Mm-hmm. Um, he works in pharmaceuticals. Um, oh, and his you. A little match made in heaven for the <laughs> <I> FDA. Know, right? <laughs> so, you know, whereas I'm the devices, he's like at the pill end. So I had him watch it and he comes from a very like... I don't know how to put it, but sort of sterile and like there's there's a process to everything. So his view was, well, you know, before getting anything done, people need to do research. And I said, yeah, you know, people need to research things before they get it done. But we're also taught, you know, to trust our doctors. And even if you look up, you know, any medical device, the first results you're going to get are from the company making it saying, hey, this is the best device ever. So even when you put in the time to research it, you know, sometimes you're not really going to get a lot of information to the contrary of what the manufacturer wants you to know. Exactly. And, you know, these manufacturers, they do the right job of employing the right people who can make you believe that product that has a 
thousands of people saying it's unsafe. They do such a great job charming just the right amount of people into believing that maybe this is all in that, you know, those patients' heads. It's- and it's a them issue. The product is fine and they'll defend that product, you know, to the day they die, they will rest, they will die on that hill. Yeah, because it's like, who are you going to believe? These doctors and scientists with years and years and years of education? Or are you going to believe these people off the street who maybe just want to make some money by suing the manufacturer? Exactly. Or they, they're looking for an easy out or something where, you know, they can pin it on this device instead of something else that actually occurred, you know, sort of like your ambulance chaser sort of things. And it's, it's awfully discouraging to people who are trying to get their voice out. But the thing is with this documentary is that it's a Netflix documentary. You have millions of people who suddenly now are opening, having their eyes open to it. And it's creating discussion clearly here. But this, what we're doing here is is great and all, but it's like, I've had some other friends of mine who are non-medical, who've texted me, who've been like, did you know this is how the FDA does their medical devices? And I was like, I honestly did not know. I know more about the pharmaceutical sides of stuff, just given the fact that usually healthcare, we more deal with, at least in the ER, you know, you're more kind of dealing with the the drug side of things. You're trying to help people out. You're trying to alleviate pain. And, and you know, I don't necessarily have a great knowledge base in the land of devices, but I do remember seeing devices suddenly disappear from the market after being touted as the next big thing, the next new innovation. When the Da Vinci rolled out, so in the film it talks about uh, the Da Vinci, which is, if you're unfamiliar with that, It's the robotic surgeon of the future. And I remember when that rolled out. I remember when that was new in the hospital that I happened to be at. And I remember in the back of my head, I was thinking to myself, well, how much training do these surgeons get? And the hospital I was at, the surgeons actually did go through the months-long program in terms of being able to be familiar with um, the uh, controls and how to do everything with the Da Vinci and... It was a lengthy process for these surgeons, but it was voted on by all the surgeons that they would rather do that process of learning the da Vinci than um, what is, I guess, now the process, which is a lot shorter and a little bit more uh, terrifying. Uh, I think I forgot what the film said. I know that. I think it was like it it was like a. a Two tests and like a written test or something. Yeah, like they have like a day with a pig. Yeah, that they can do maneuvers and stuff with. And then they have like two precepted surgeries. And then they're good to go. It's interesting because people will ask or they they did when I was working in this hospital, they were asking us the patients were, well, would you trust a surgeon who would you trust that surgeon with a da Vinci? And at the time, it was kind of hard to answer that because nobody knew yeah. what was going to happen down the road. Now, those surgeons went through a lot more training because that's what those surgeons wanted. So kudos to them for speaking yes, up absolutely. and saying, I want to be the best surgeon for my patient by doing this in a way that I'm comfortable, not just doing it by the way the manufacturer says I can probably skirt by knowing that compared to what they did say you know or they do offer these surgeons in terms of training they absolutely had a better 
a knowledge base and a head start on their colleagues. But I still don't know if I would ever be comfortable necessarily with that surgical approach. And and that might be just my own personal thing based, not even based on just innovation and healthcare and the new sort of thing. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. And that's another thing that this whole entire documentary talks about is just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. The amount of training required on the Da Vinci actually kind of shocked me um, because when we are training someone on the line, it certain stations, it takes two or more months before you're signed off as trained. Because when you're in training, what happens is someone else who is a trainer sits beside you and watches you and helps you make these parts. You are not left alone until you're signed off. And again, that can take weeks and weeks and weeks. So just making the parts, we require a high amount of training. And the thought that you could let a doctor loose with a highly technical robotic device that's going to perform surgery on someone, the thought that they don't require as much training as we do just to make the device is kind of scary. It's definitely scary. And that's, I mean, that I should say that the whole thing with the bleeding edge isn't necessarily to scare people, but it is going to probably heighten you to a lot of different things. And that's what you should do with healthcare is you should always be asking questions. Just because something is touted as the best thing or the newest thing or reduces this, that, and the other, and you know you have a faster recovery time if you do this way instead of that way, just because you have all these flashy buzzwords thrown at you doesn't mean you shouldn't ask questions and you shouldn't just blindly trust your doctor. You can do the research and people should be doing the research all the time. I always tell people in the ER what meds they're getting, even if it's the first time they're getting it or the 100th time they're getting that medicine. And I've had patients go, yeah, 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 I've had it before. And I'll be like, okay, so what does this medication do? And they kind of look at you like, um... Yeah, like, well, you know what it does, so that's all that matters. (laughs) Right. So it's like, you know, just because you've had something before doesn't necessarily mean that you know how it operates. In In the same way, just because you've never had this device before, but you're told that it's good, doesn't mean you know how it operates. And with healthcare... People are so afraid to ask questions of their providers. Oh, yeah. Because they feel like they'll be seen as a difficult patient if they do. And you're not. (laughs) No, I think both sides could do better. I think as a patient, we all need to be better advocates and better at researching. And I think, you know, doctors, maybe just from my own experience, could be a little better at answering those questions. Because I've encountered doctors who... Their reaction was kind of like I was second guessing them, you know, and it's like, no, I just would like some more information on this. So I think if both sides kind of came into more of an agreement about having more open discussions, that would make things a lot easier. Well, and the other thing, too, is that I think people don't like to be caught off guard in healthcare. So if a doctor doesn't know something to them, it's like, you know, I've seen it with a few different doctors where they just feel like, well, screw this patient. They think they know more than me and they're just being a little jackass by asking me all these questions. Then I've seen the other side of the coin where a doctor will go, you know what? Let me go ahead. I'm going to step out. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to just make sure that what I'm telling you is the right thing because it's been a while. Now, I would much rather have Dr. B who says, you know what? It's been a while. Let me just go and back this up 
and comes in, gives me the paperwork and we go through it together and we're all on the same page versus somebody who's like, no, 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 I've done this before. Like, trust me, I've had training on it. It's totally yeah, fine. Absolutely. You're good. You want a brochure? That to me would just be so dismissive. And I know it happens. I know it happens every single day where where doctors can be dismissive, some of them without realizing it just because of their personalities. And some of them do it on purpose just to get a patient to shut up and do it their way. I can kind of see where some of the doctors are coming from because they've been doing it. And, you know, they've got they've got the education and the training. So they feel that they know exactly what they're doing. But from the patient perspective, it does feel nice to feel like the doctor is actually listening to you. Right. And I think that's kind of like the whole thing with this documentary is it definitely opens up the discussion and the dialogue about what what are we putting on the market and advertising to patients as beneficial and effective for them for certain needs that they have versus doing the research as patients and as providers in order to actually figure out if this is really something that is beneficial. Yeah. And I think we all need to be not just better advocates for ourselves, but for each other. I think in general, we need to hold the government and the FDA more accountable when it comes to how these devices are put on the market. Right. There has Um, to be better testing and it has to be, I think it has to be longer testing. You see it happen with medications that they've had to recall because of horrible side effects and sometimes deaths caused by it. And they're slow. They're so slow to jump on that because I mean, pharmaceuticals is a big business. Oh yeah. Same thing with medical devices. It's a big business. Yeah. I didn't realize how big the business was until I watched that documentary because I, I had a grasp about, you know, how much my company in particular makes, but the industry overall, I wasn't like really sure about how much they made, but uh, yeah, I kind of, I almost feel like I need a raise after watching the documentary and seeing how much the industry brings in every year. Yeah, exactly. And you would think though with that, with that level of funding and resources they have, they could do longer term testing. But the other thing too, is that if you've got something hot on your hands in terms of something, you're really like, this is going to help people. I mean, I think also in the bleeding edge, it talks about the scientists who create the things that go to market. Like they're scientists, they're through and through, they get excited about these discoveries that they make. Oh yeah. They want to help people. Like the certain things too. I mean, they are also people uh, who are in healthcare and they're also scientists and they don't want to think that a product that they had a hand in hurts somebody. And it's hard to wrap your mind around that going back to it again. But one thing I can also point out is that not every device is actually made by the, the idea of it doesn't always come from a scientist or doctor. Um, a lot of our devices uh, are created by biomedical engineers. So even though their degree is specifically for the human body, they're not doctors. Um, eventually, yes, the scientist doctors come in later in the process of creating that. But a lot of our in-house stuff is biomedical engineers. But I can say, you know, from working with them, you know, they're great. They're very open. They answer questions. They'll explain things. They're open to suggestions for how to improve the process and stuff like that. But a lot of these things start with just um, 
a biomedical engineer and not necessarily a doctor or scientist. Which is always kind of interesting. It's it's people outside of sort of the the subset that ends up using the device. It's sort of like, it's like we always joke about this in the hospital. We go, who the hell designed this hospital? Clearly not somebody who works in a hospital. Yeah, that's something we laugh about because, you know, the, the biomedical engineers, they design the product and then they design how it's manufactured. Well, then they set us down on the line and they're like, okay, make these parts. Well, almost immediately we're like, okay, well, this is an issue, but if we do it this way, it'll fix that issue. And what I've noticed is that in general, engineers, they're so, they kind of have a hard time admitting <laughs> that maybe the process can be tweaked a little or it's wrong. But but generally, you know, after a while, they're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. We'll adjust this so that we can fix it. But um, yeah, engineers definitely have a unique way of uh, of thinking and seeing things. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you're just like, that's not quite practical. And they're not on that level of being like, application of their thing they're just they have their own you know one track hyper focused goal we say you know where where i work it's you're either a product development person or you're a manufacturing person the difference is if a product's being made and there's an issue the product development person wants to stop the line and figure out what's wrong before they move forward whereas the manufacturing person is like oh well we'll just adjust this and we'll keep going it's definitely two different mindsets. Uh, I'm definitely more of the production kind of person. I've worked in PD, but it's it's very slow progress, which is fine because it's product development and it should be a slow progress. But I'm a hands-on, like, do as much as possible, like, let's get done, fine detail kind of person. So what would you say for you was your biggest takeaway from watching it i would say for me the biggest takeaway is everyone needs to do the research and ask the questions and americans as a whole need to get out and do our own lobbying to our politicians we may not have the millions of dollars but you know if enough enough citizens go and they call and they vote and they write then the politicians are going to listen yeah, and I would definitely agree with that. I know at the end of the documentary, it does it doesn't just like leave you empty in terms of like, okay, now you know all of this, now do you feel powerless? It does talk about doing your research, talking with physicians and other healthcare providers about what what goes into, you know, them recommending things and making sure that it is from a place of research and not necessarily from a place of just it being pushed onto them and then pushing it onto their patients. There was that great part near the end with the women who were involved with Esher going going to the Capitol, you know, going going to the lawmakers and really showing them what is going on and talking to them. And you could see Sometimes with documentaries, when they go to their lawmakers, you could see that some of these lawmakers see it as an opportunity for them to feel like they're engaging with the community, but they have so many people in their back pocket that they could care less. Oh, yeah. Not, I, I genuinely believe that because the women went to other female lawmakers, they were just like, oh, okay, tell me everything. And you can yeah. see that happen with some of them, too. Yeah, and I mean... 
not to be sexist, but as a woman, it's easier to understand, you know, female problems. Right. Just as, as a man, it's easier to understand certain male problems. So, you know, if you just went to, like, male politicians, they might not quite understand the whole scale of it. <laughs> so I think, and and I would say the other takeaway is this. These companies, the biggest, most important thing is revenue. And the way that you can impact that is negative publicity negative publicity (laughs) so you know if you get enough people together and you start to make a stink and you're on you know local news or uh, national news that's when they start to notice is once they start to get the bad pr they'll set up and pay attention exactly yeah so i would say you know if you have concerns absolutely address those don't be afraid and if you get too much pushback i would say maybe address that doctor as well you know i mean there's you can go there are people higher up than that doctor that you can talk to if there's an issue um if possible you know there's always trying to change doctors i know it can unfortunately be difficult sometimes but yeah i would say always push push back and fight for yourself so my big thing too is is kind of along those same lines is all about advocating for yourself one thing I always tell people in the ER is that we only see you for a brief snapshot of your whole entire day, maybe your whole entire life. And if something's going on and we're not finding it out right now, we're telling you that everything looks fine, it looks normal, and you're insisting that it's not fine, it's not normal, it's not in your head. What you need is to keep pursuing that, you know, finding people who might have a different perspective and it might take weeks, months, years to get to that point where somebody says you're right, but you can't give up. I mean, you have to keep advocating for yourself or for your loved one. And it's hard because supporting somebody who is going through it or going through something yourself and having people tell you it's all in your head, wears down on a person, wears down on their family. But If you support that person or if you are that person and you find that support, you find the people who are like, actually, I'm experiencing the same thing as you or I'm going through something similar. That's when all of a sudden you get like that, that sort of, it's not just all in my head. It really is not just all in my head. It's so important for people to keep advocating for themselves, especially in the face of a system that wants to tell you it's all in your head. Because it can be something. I mean, chances are, if you're that in tune with your body and you are like, something is wrong, you are probably absolutely correct. There is something going on. Yeah, most people don't like going to the doctor constantly. Mm -hmm. They don't like invasive procedures, you know. So if if someone's constantly saying, yeah, there's something wrong, um, don't doubt yourself. Nope. And definitely watch The Bleeding Edge on Netflix. But like I said, you might need to, uh, what I had to do was the first time I watched it, I had to like pace around the room. Um, I kept pausing it because I kept getting very upset at just the breakdown in terms of the system that approved it and us as healthcare providers rolling out these things thinking they're good and then not wanting to hear the actual 
responses based upon what happened to people. I just kept getting so frustrated on everyone's behalf that I was like, I need to calm down. So I like paced around the room. But I did watch it a couple times just to make sure that I didn't really miss anything too much. And it's very well done. Like I said, if you read certain reviews for it, they'll say it's very one sided. That's really any documentary. I mean, yeah, but I mean, they they gave these companies the opportunity to talk to them and those companies declined. Exactly. So if you're not going to be a part of the conversation, you can't really complain when it doesn't go the way you want. (laughs) Right. And I really do think that it's something that's very important for everybody to watch. um, Yes. Just so that they're aware of the fact that they don't have to go along with a doctor saying, I would recommend this device. You can have a conversation with your doctor. You don't just have to be like, well, you're the doctor. Sounds like a plan to me. You can absolutely ask questions and be like, okay, well, is there metal in this hip replacement? Because I'm concerned about that. And your doctor can go through options. You know, if you want this, or if you're concerned about this, that, and the other, yeah, we should, and I there would... should always be options in healthcare. There shouldn't just be, this is the only way. So for the joint replacements, a lot of those are elderly people. I would say it's pretty important if you know someone who is older and maybe going through that offer to go with them and be their advocate. Because I know that, you know, sometimes it helps to have a second person there with you to talk and ask questions because maybe, you know, your mind isn't like right there where it should be because you're worried about everything else you're being told. It helps to have a second person there. That's going to be like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I have this question, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Ask questions for your healthcare providers there's nothing wrong with asking questions. And if a doctor can't give you an answer, then you need to kind of call, call some other things into question about why can't they give you an answer? And you know, that's a whole nother thing, but ask questions every step of the way, ask questions about devices, ask questions about procedures, do as much research as you can about them like like it says in the film, like we've said before, just because something is new does not mean it's better. So it's something that you have a lot of power in terms of your own health care. And don't ever think that you don't. It's your body is there to guide it to hopefully a better place where it's healed or there's um, recovery of some sort possible. And it has to be done together. And that's kind of where the nursing perspective stuff comes into play, where it is a team approach. And sometimes when you're talking to physicians, you feel like it's just a doctor approach and it should always be a team approach. So don't be afraid to ask a nurse or an aide or somebody a question because we can relay that to the doctor. Don't feel like you have to be you know, listening to everything the doctor says and you don't have a voice because you don't want to maybe upset the doctor, you can always ask one of us because we will approach the doctors on your behalf. That's something that we do. We advocate for patients. So definitely use nurses as a resource for voicing your concerns. I've had numerous people, I've had numerous patients throughout the years ask me questions because they meant to ask the doctor, but I'm the person that's been in their room the most. Yeah, it's never too late if you have a question to find the answer. All right, Elizabeth, where can people find you? 
They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at OVTrueCrime and my website, OVTrueCrime.com. Do you have a favorite dad joke? I think it's like the old stupid one of when someone says, I'm thirsty, and then the dad says, hi, thirsty, I'm dad. (laughs) It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. I like it. I like the classics. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks Uh, for having me. It's been a it's been a good discussion, I think. Yes, absolutely. Everybody go watch the documentary, discuss it, tell your friends and family to watch it, get a big conversation going. You can always tweet to me too if you have like any whatever about the documentary and I will try and find answers. I don't know, I don't want to speak on your behalf, Elizabeth, but I mean if people tweet to you. Oh yeah, I mean I won't, you know, talk about exact clients or the exact she can't names disclose the certain things just like where there's HIPAA for us there's contractual things for yeah. her so but general questions absolutely I can answer yeah and definitely if I you know if I can't answer um I will figure out a way to get you a resource to somebody who can or somewhere that can give you a little bit better understanding so use 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 our us as resources if you'd like especially after <laughs> watching the bleeding edge um, again, it's on Netflix. It is 10 out of 10, yes. five stars all around. It's definitely, I would say, required viewing if you can handle a little bit of uh, medical documentary sort of stuff. So again, special thanks goes out to Elizabeth of Ohio Valley True Crime Podcast for lending her time and her expertise and her knowledge regarding medical devices into creating this episode. Now going forward in terms of episodes and schedules, I still am actually going to be driving towards my next assignment, which will be in the Pacific Northwest at the end of September is that start date. So still might be a little sporadic until I get settled down in that area. And then I could flow into more regular scheduled episodes every Monday again. So bear with me through September. I've been working behind the scenes with some really cool people in creating maybe a bit of a different angle in the meantime to tide everybody over, I guess. So I am working on getting that all edited and put together in a way that will be very informative and entertaining and medically relevant. We are all about medutainment around these parts, aren't we? I just wanted to also say thank you for not only being patient with me during my month-long hiatus, but for rating, reviewing, interacting, doing Whatever you guys do in terms of getting the word out about this podcast, I truly do appreciate it. And I know you hear about it from other hosts, but we really do love when people give us feedback, interact with us. It just kind of gives you a little reassurance that you're not just behind a microphone talking to yourself and that there are people out there that appreciate what you're putting out there. So huge kudos goes out to you guys. I am super stoked to be bringing you some interesting subject matter going down the line and into the future. So be excited for that. And as always, believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, never give up on something that is worth fighting for, but don't fight for something that isn't worth your time. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted, What Now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? 
on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I'm not an animal expert either. And together we do a podcast about animals called Varmints. Every week we pick an animal, do a bunch of research on it, and bring you some interesting facts about that animal. But we don't stop there. We talk about that animal in movies, TV, and other pop culture. And we talk about whether or not that animal would make a tasty dish, and how intelligent we think it is on the scale of 1 to 10. It's exactly like one of those fancy PBS nature documentaries. Except with more poo jokes! New episodes go live every Thursday wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or you can visit us at blazingcariboustudios.com. <laughs> Varmints! Varmints! I'm Carrie. And I'm Donna. And we're a pair of normal chicks who love to talk about things that go bump in the night and the real life monsters who live among us. Join us every week as we creep it real with our conversational storytelling of true crime and the paranormal. Each episode will have one true crime story told by Carrie. That's me. And a paranormal story told by Donna. That's me. We'll cover everything from ghosts and goblins to your garden variety serial killer. Now this is it. Don't Don't get get scared. scared. So we're grownups and we did it. We did. I feel I'm going to go downstairs and have myself some ice cream.